All right, please open your Bible to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets, little book. And many of the minor prophets sort of follow a similar formula. The beginning of the books are often, there's lots of judgment, there's lots of sort of warnings um, against, uh, you know, wicked behavior, against things that violate God's law. Um, and then often at the end of a prophetic book, and we see this a lot, especially in the minor prophets, the very last bit will be kind of this, this you know, collection of promises, promises for the faithful, promises for, for God's people, uh, promises for them to cling to. So after all this judgment, we often end these minor prophet books on a really high note, okay? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning from Zephaniah. We're going to look at sort of this hopeful ending full of God's promises and some of the most beautiful promises, I think, in Scripture. And so uh, we're going to look this morning at Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. This is God's word. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. He shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him again and ask him for his help. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do come to you this morning uh, as needy people, as needy sinners, and we know we need your help even to rightly understand your word. And we pray that just as uh, many, many years ago you, you spoke uh, for light to shine out of darkness, we pray that a light would shine out of this text, that you would illuminate it for us, that you would teach us from it, that you would teach us the gospel of your son Jesus from this passage. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so last week I had the privilege of watching uh, the movie, the old early 90s movie Hook. Okay, the Robin Williams, Dustin Hoffman movie, and it really was a privilege, all right? This, I forgot how fun that movie was. I hadn't seen it like more than a decade. And so uh, I was watching the movie Hook, and it was really interesting. So for those of you who may have missed out on this movie 20 years ago, uh, or who weren't born yet, uh, so in Hook, there is, uh, you know, Peter Pan has left Neverland, okay? And he has, and they're, they're imagining of this story, and he has, you know, uh, gone to sort of the, the normal world uh, that we live in, and he has gotten married to Wendy's granddaughter, and he's become a corporate lawyer, as one does. And, uh, and Peter Pan has kind of forgotten about uh, his history. He's sort of forgotten about Neverland. He's forgotten how to fight and how to fly and how to crow. He's forgotten all the things. And he's sort of forgotten about all this stuff. And so, um, you know, through the course of the movie, uh, Peter Pan gets brought back into Neverland, okay? He goes to, to save his children. Captain Hook has come and stolen his children. And so at the beginning, when he gets back into the, to Neverland, the only person, the only being who really believes that he's Peter Pan is Tinkerbell, right? And everyone else, Captain Hook, the Lost Boys, are like, this is, who's this mid- old, middle-aged, you know, chubby guy? This is not Peter Pan. This is not the Peter Pan that we knew. 
And so no one believes that it's him. Well, eventually the lost boys do sort of begin to recognize him. Like, okay, I can see, you know, I can see the young Peter Pan that I knew, you know, in there somewhere. And so they, they accept that this is really Peter, okay? That just he's a sort of shell of, him former, of his former self. Um, but they don't really believe in him, right? They don't really believe that he's Peter Pan. Like, they know that he's Peter Pan, but they don't really believe it. And there's this great moment. So, so there's like three days, and the lost boys are teaching him stuff. And so Peter, he learns how to fight, and he learns how to fly, and he learns how to crow, right? And that's the, most of the movie spent doing that. And um, at the very end of the movie, you know, he, he dones the, the green tights again, and he has this golden sword, and he's ready to fight Captain Hook and to save his children. And there's this great moment, sort of right before the showdown with Captain Hook, where the lost boys kind of one by one, they come up to him and say, I believe in you, Peter. I believe in you. You know, like, they had known that he was Peter Pan for a few days, but now, now they see it. Now they see him flying and crowing, and they believe that this is Peter Pan. They believe he can do what Peter Pan does. And I share that story with you because Hook is awesome, but also because uh, it, it kind of illustrates for us the difference between knowledge and belief, right? We can know something and not really believe it, right? Not really uh, trust in it, not really entrust ourselves to it. And I think one of the doctrines of the Bible that maybe this happens with the most is the doctrine of God's love. Uh, it's one of the most basic sort of tenets of, of the faith, right? We, the most famous verse of the New Testament, John 3.16, is a verse about God's love. We all, if you know anything about Christianity, you've probably heard something about God's love. We understand it, we know it, and yet... I think that's one of the doctrines that we sometimes struggle the most to really believe, you know, in our day in, day in and day out lives, to really put into practice, to believe that God loves us. So this morning, I want us to consider this problem with God's love. It's not a problem with God, it's a problem with us. And the problem is this, what do we do when we, when we, feel, when we don't feel like God loves us? What, what do we do in those moments where we don't really believe it? That we, we know it's true, we can... We can quote Bible verses about God's love, but we don't really believe it to be true. Um, you know, last weekend I had a little weekend off, and, and my family and I went to Orange Beach, and, you know, we were had a wonderful weekend. We were, the kids were playing in the sand, and we were, um, you know, stuffing ourselves with seafood, just have you know, enjoying God's creation. It was just a wonderful family time. And it was really, really easy last weekend to believe that God loved me, okay? Because I was enjoying, I'm not trying to be shallow here, but I was enjoying all of these good gifts that I'd received from his hand, right? Gifts of family and, and, all these, and his creation, all these things. It was very easy to believe that God loved me. I felt it, right? But what about when things aren't so good? What about the, the parts of life that aren't vacation, okay? What about when, uh, when our sorrow or our shame or our stress or our suffering, or our sin? What about when those things come to us? They make God feel far away. What about when we look at the mess that's in our life and we can't see any evidence of God's love? What, what then? Well, actually, the Old Testament book of Zephaniah is a great place to take some of those questions. Uh, Zephaniah is not one of the most well-known prophets, and so I'll ask you just to bear with me for just a moment as I try to set the context for us and kind of talk about a little bit what, what's going on with Zephaniah in, in his day when he gives this prophecy. So Zephaniah was a prophet when uh, Josiah was king of Judah, okay? Uh, and you'll probably remember Josiah. He was the boy king, right? He became king when he was about eight years old. He was also known for having these extensive uh, reforms in Judah. Uh, Judah had, for many several generations, had not been following God's law, but Ju uh, Josiah kind of brings uh, the, the law back into play, and he establishes these reforms. Um, and so he was a very good and righteous king. 
Um, and now this all was taking place kind of in the early 600s BC, and this was r- roughly 100 years or so after Israel, the northern kingdom. You remember the kingdom split. Israel's in the north, Judah was in the south, and Israel was conquered by Assyria in about 722 uh, BC. So this is like roughly 100 years later. Um, and so, though that Josiah had brought a lot of reform, uh, was bringing people back to God's law, it was not sort of wide. It was not uniform, right? Not every person was repenting. Not every person was uh, obeying this call to repentance and this call back to the law. And so, Zephaniah's message, this book, is kind of directed towards the people of Judah who have not yet repented, who have not yet, who, who are still sort of following pagan practices, who are still ignoring God's law and ignoring the Lord. Um, and so most of Zephaniah's uh, pro- prophecy is going to deal with this sort of future day of the Lord, this great day of, of judgment and salvation that is that's coming. Um, and so uh, the Lord is speaking through Ze- Zephaniah to sort of warn Judah that if it continues down this path, then there will be repercussions. And so the, kind of one of the central verses, if you'll turn with me back to Zephaniah 2, one of the central verses is Zephaniah 2, chapter 2, verse 3. Um, this is kind of, the, I think, the, at the core, at the heart of the book. Uh, when we read this, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on that day of the anger of the Lord. And so there's this kind of plea from Zephaniah. Look, you know, there's still time to turn, uh, you know, to turn things around, to seek humility, to seek the Lord, and perhaps you will, uh, he, will, he will not bring judgment upon the land, upon Judah. So there's this hope that's being held out. And and Josiah is the, the last good king of Judah. Okay, this is like their last chance. This is it, all right? They have, some, they have several good prophets, you know, Habakkuk and, and uh, Zephaniah and Jeremiah during this day. They have a good king. This is it. This is our last chance to sort of turn things around as, the na- as a nation. But as we know, uh, many in the kingdom did not repent. And ultimately, Babylon was conquered, uh, in, uh, Jerusalem was conquered in, in 586 B.C., Okay, history lesson over. So what was the point of all of that stuff? Well, the point is this. Because the people who were originally receiving Zephaniah's message, the people who were the original audience for this, are about to go through some really difficult times. They, th- these people and their children you know, are, about to, are about to see their beloved, their home, their beloved country, their beloved city. They're about to see it destroyed and taken over. They're about to experience three waves of Babylonian attacks between 600 B.C. and 586 B.C. There were, the Babylonians came three, three different times and kind of ransacked and, and attacked uh, Jerusalem and Judah before finally sort of destroying it in 586. And so uh, they're about to go through some very, very difficult times. And the rest of these people's lives, most likely, are going to be marred by tragedy, by difficulty, by uh, suffering. Um, but as I said earlier, like many of the prophetic books, there's a lot of talk of judgment, but then at the end, there, there are these promises. There's this light at the end of the tunnel, and it's held out to the faithful. It's held out to those uh, who are God's people. And so I want to submit to you this morning that God is giving this passage, Jer- this Zephaniah 3 passage that I read, he is giving this, uh, these promises as a comfort to the faithful ones, as a comfort to the remnant, as a comfort to his people. That throughout all the suffering they're about to endure, throughout the exile that's about to come uh, for them, uh, that th- these, are co- these are promises for them to cling to. And so how, do these, how does this book apply to us? Uh, how, how can we, you know, this is for, these prophecies were for people who lived thousands of years ago. How can we uh, receive them today? Well, some of these promise, promises are specific to Judah, but many of them, a great number of them can be applied to God's people in all times and all places uh, since then. 
Uh, and so that includes us. One, one commenter, commentator described it this way. He said, For the time which is now, the time which is now mentioned uh, in Zephaniah 3 began when the people were restored from the exile. So after the Babylonian captivities, when these promises begin to be fulfilled, but they continue all throughout up until today, until Jesus returns again. So all these promises started being fulfilled uh, when they came back from Babylon, and they continue being fulfilled uh, even up until today and up until Christ returns. And so, um, so this morning I want us to look at uh, two points from this passage. Okay, We're going to look at the evidence of God's love, and we're going to look at the quietness of God's love. I'm going to give you a little warning. The first point is going to be significantly longer than the second point, okay? So don't panic if, uh, if the first point seems really long. Uh, so this morning, let's look at the evidence for God's love. What we know uh, from the Christian band DC Talk, we know that love is a verb, right? We know that love is something, uh, as another songwriter said, love is something one decides to do. Um, and Jesus himself taught this, that greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Love is, is more than just telling someone, hey, I love you. That's good too. But, but love is action. Love is doing things. Love is often doing something at, the, at, at, at a cost for yourself, whether the cost is uh, for you know, your comfort or your money or your time or, your, or even your life to give those things for another person. That's what love looks like. So as we come to this passage looking for evidence of God's love, we are looking for activity. What does the Lord do? What is he doing to display his love for his people in this passage? So we're just going to briefly look through and note a few things that God is doing, that he will do and is doing in these promises. So first we see that God deals with our enemies and oppressors. We see that in verses 15 and 19. We read these words in verse 15. He has cleared away your enemies. And then in verse 19, behold at that time... I will deal with all your oppressors. And so the people of Judah, again, are about to experience a lot of oppression. A lot of their, their enemies are going to attack. Um, many, of the, many of the best and brightest in Judah and Jerusalem, like Daniel, are going to be captured and taken back to Babylon and to live in captivity. But here's a promise that, that ultimately that these enemies, these oppressors, are not going to win the day. That, that ultimately they will be defeated. They will be dealt with by the Lord. They will be cleared. If not in this life, then in the life to come, at the day of the Lord. Uh, and so um, we see here, first and foremost, that, that our, our enemies, our oppressors, will be dealt with. That's a, a good promise. Next, we see another promise, the, the promise that the Lord himself will dwell in our midst. We see that in verses 15 and 17. We, in verse 15, we read these, these words. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And then in verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. Now, this is similar to one of the most uh, common promises of the Old Testament and throughout the Bible, which is that the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is sort of similar to that, that the Lord is in your midst. He is, dwell he is dwelling among you. He is with you. And so this would be an encouraging thing for Judah to hear, right? Because as many of them are going to be exiled, many of them are going to be removed from their home and taken away. But the reminder is that, look, this, this exile is a temporary thing that you will be in the presence of the Lord again, whether back in Jerusalem after the exile or in heaven with him, that he is not going to leave them or forsake them. And this promise is real for us as well, right? We're, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that the people of God are a living temple and that God dwells among them. That, that is true for us. That, that is true this, this morning, right now, at this very moment. The people of God, we are a living temple and the Lord is dwelling among us. So he deals with our enemies and our oppressors. He, deals with our, he, he dwells in our midst. 
And he also deals with our fear. Look with me at, at verses um, uh, 15, and 19, uh, excuse me, 15 and 16 again. We read this. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Because, see, because God is, is, is present with his people, because he is dwelling with us, that ought to cast out our fear. That ought to remove our fear from us. Uh, God's love, is a, he loves us with a perfect love. And as we just read a moment ago from 1 John, perfect love casts out fear. So this perfect love of God casts out, is able to cast out our fears as well. And we wrestle with fears every day, right? Fears, with, fears about our future, fears about our children, fears about our finances or about our jobs or about our health, fears about maybe the threat of war, fears about Ebola, right? We, we deal with fears of various kinds every single day. But we read here that we don't have to fear, for the Lord is with us. He dwells among us. David says this himself in Psalm 23, right? The Lord, he says, um, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so uh, the Lord will deal with our fear as well. His presence, his presence among us, his being with us casts out our fears. Um, and next we see that uh, God deals with our suffering. He promises to deal with our suffering as well. And we see this in verse 18. Now I want you to notice here that, that the voice has changed, okay? The, from verses 14 to 17, uh, Zephaniah is speaking about the Lord in the third person, right? The Lord is going to do this. The Lord will do that. But here it changes to a first-person perspective. Here the Lord begins to address his people directly through Zephaniah. I just want you to take note of that. So let's look at verse 18. He says this, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. So he's saying that those who mourn will be, will be gathered for the festival, will be gathered for this great party. They will no longer suffer reproach from, from others, no longer be victims of derision from their enemies. Um, just as the psalmist writes in Psalm 30, that you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Um, and so here we see that those who mourn will be brought into the festival, brought into the celebration. Now, this doesn't mean that we will never suffer, right? As Dr. Bob has been preaching through First Peter on Sunday mornings, we definitely see that suffering, living in a fallen world, especially as those who follow Christ, suffering is a part of our lives. It's something we must endure. Um, but every last bit of our suffering is temporary, right? It's something that is, that is here, but that will not remain forever. And God, the people of God can rejoice that one day our suffering will cease. Our suffering will be no more. But God's love for his people will never cease. It will never go away. Um, and next we see, uh, we kind of keep sort of briefly moving through these things, that, these, these actions of God's love in this passage. We see that God also deals with our shame. Look at verse 19. He says, Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors, and I will save the lame, and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Now in the Old Testament, there were some very strict laws about who could and could not enter into the temple, who could and could not come into the tabernacle, come into God's presence. Uh, you know, those who had physical deformities, those who were unclean, whether from leprosy or some sort of uh, deformity they had, uh, were not allowed to come into the temple, right? The temple was meant to be this sort of clean place where the Lord dwelt. But here we see the Lord promising, speaking directly to his people. He says that he will save the lame and the outcast. Those who were cast off, those who were unclean, those who were outsiders will be welcomed in. Those who are far off will be brought near. Uh, a beautiful promise that the Lord will, will deal with their shame, right? The shame that they experienced, so the shame over sin, the shame over all the ways that they were felt that they failed to measure up. 
And we, feel, we start with those same things, don't we? Shame about things that we've done in our past. Shame about uh, ways in which we feel like we have failed in, in one thing or another. Ways we feel like we failed to measure up. Um, we have shame, but here we see that there's an exchange that only the Lord can make. That he will exchange, he wipes away our shame and replaces it with praise. And finally we get to, uh, we're going to spend a little more time on this one. This is kind of, to me, sort of the heart of the passage in verse 17. We get to this, uh, another promise, another sign of, another evidence of God's love for us. And it is that the Lord will rejoice and sing over us. Um, So let's look at verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, Now, many of the previous actions that we have kind of been looking at here are things that a king might do, right? A king is going to defeat, your, defeat his enemies, defeat your enemies, and protect you. A king is going to dwell in your midst. You know, these are things, these are kingly activities. And here we see something that is definitely not kingly, something that is much more tender, much more intimate. Um, that is the Lord singing over us. Um, is the Lord singing songs of praise to us? No, of course not. Is he worshiping us? No, of course not. Uh, that's why it says that he's not singing to us, he's singing over us. Um, this is like something a mother or father might do for a frightened child in the night, right? To sing over them, to calm them, to soothe them, to comfort them. Now, we're quite accustomed to reading in the Bible about uh, God's people singing to, to Him, right? I mean, even the very beginning of this passage, verse 14, there's a command to sing, right? Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Uh, we're commanded to worship all throughout the Bible. But uh, here we see something that, that just seems different. Seems, it seems unusual uh, that the, we're told that the Lord himself will sing over his people. Um, we don't see that very much in the Bible. In fact, this may be the only time that that's, that happens. Uh, something that, one of the verses that comes somewhat close to that is Isaiah 62, verse 5, where we read this. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Um, and so there is this idea in the Bible of the Lord rejoicing over his people, of the Lord delighting in his people, and even singing over his people. And so I want you to imagine with me now. Imagine the people in Zephaniah's day, okay? Imagine those, the faithful ones who are going through the suffering, who are going through, as they're watching these waves of, of attackers coming from Babylon to conquer them, as they're seeing their sons and daughters carried away in captivity, as they're um, watching this wicked nation conquer them. Um, I want you to think about how this passage might have, what it might have meant to them, how this passage might have set with them. That, you know, here, surely there's some mistake here, they would probably think. That this, can't be, this can't be right. You know, surely the Lord is not going to rejoice over me. There's nothing that I have done to deserve such a thing. But here... You know, I imagine that this passage would be a, a comfort to them, a tremendous comfort to them. You know, in the midst of all the sorrow, in the midst of all the destruction and the pain, here we read that the Lord will rejoice over his people. He will rejoice over his faithful ones with loud singing. You know, I imagine this, this promise was like, must have been like a lifesaver to them, right? Something, you know, and the sea of their suffering, this was the one thing maybe that they could cling to. You know, these promises of God, these promises that he loved them. Even though all the evidence around them did not seem to indicate that God loved them, right? When they looked around them and they saw the destruction and the, and the suffering uh, that, were, that was happening in, in Judah and Jerusalem, it wasn't very evident that God loved them, but they had, to, they had these promises to cling to. They had these shelters in the storm, these refuge 
refuges where they could uh, be, feel, uh, feel the love of God, where they could um, uh, start to believe anew in God's love for them. And this promise can function the same way for us, right? You know, uh, there are moments in life where it seems like the storms are going to swallow us up. Uh, there's moments where um, we feel like our sorrow might finally do us in. It might finally be the end of us. But here's a little shelter in the storm. Here's a small light to cut through the darkness that he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. So why does God go to so much trouble at the end of Zephaniah? Why, in this passage, why is he going to so much trouble to convince us of his love? Well, it goes back to the problem that I mentioned earlier because we are so quick to forget it. Because this is, although this is one of the most basic truths of the faith, that God loves us, he loves his people, it's the one that we maybe struggle to believe almost more than any other, that God really does love us. Even in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of life's storms, to believe, to actively believe that God loves you is a, is a very difficult thing. Um, let me paraphrase a, an old theologian here who said this. He said, regarding this passage, he said, God labors here so much to persuade us of his love because we are prone by nature to unbelief, because we are susceptible to the lies of the evil one, and because we are prone to wander and easily drawn away from his word. So, so what do we do in those moments, in those, in those tough times when we don't feel like God loves us? We don't sense God's love. We, we're having trouble finding the evidence that God really does love us. Uh, what are we to do in those situations? Well, we come to passages like this and we eat and drink. We come to passages like this and meditate. We get it in our souls. For the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. These promises can be our refuge. They can be our shelter, just as they were for God's people uh, back in thousands of years ago as they watched the destruction of their home, of their beloved city, Jerusalem, and clung to promises just like this. And so that's kind of a look at the evidence of God's love. Let's, let's look very briefly now at the quietness of God's love. There are a number of ways that I think we could describe how God's love affects us, how it changes us, how it shapes us, what it does to us. Uh, but there's one mentioned in particular in this passage that I want to consider. Tucked in the middle of verse 17, we read this. He will quiet you by his love. Now, a quick note. Some of your translations may uh, say something different, and so I want to just address that briefly. Um, some, will, some translate this as, uh, he will be quiet in his love. Some translate this as, he will rest in his love. And the reason for that is because Hebrew can be a difficult language to interpret sometimes. Uh, the Hebrew word that's used here uh, can mean to be quiet or to make quiet. Okay, So either of those translations has some merit to it, uh, I think. Um, and I'm not going to die on this hill, but, but I will just say I do prefer like, the way the New King James, the way the ESV translate this because of, because of the context, because of what's on either side of that phrase. Um, when we read, on one hand, he, he will rejoice over you, and then on the, on the back end, he will exult over you, which is another word for rejoice. He will exult over you with loud singing. So we have the Lord rejoicing and singing over us, and right in the middle, there's the people of God who are quieted, who are being quiet. I really like that contrast of the Lord is the one who is rejoicing. The Lord is the one who is singing, and we are quiet in the midst of that. Uh, and so just as a parent singing over a troubled child might quiet them, might calm them, I think that is the meaning that, the, the, that Zephaniah is getting at here, that God's singing over us, his rejoicing over us will quiet us, will calm us 
in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the suffering. And so um, it will make us, God's singing over us will make us still. Um, as the storms of life rage overhead and all around us, there's a promise that we will be quieted, that we will be at peace. And, uh, you know, this is not a promise that nothing bad will happen to us. Rather, it's a promise that because of God's love, that described so beautifully in this verse, we can be at peace in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the storm. And so it's because of his love for us, because of his tender and rejoicing and singing over us, because of these reminders and these promises, we can be at peace, we can be at rest, we can be quiet and calm and soothed, even while everything in life around us is exactly the opposite. So the storms of life are often what make us uh, lose that feeling that God loves us, right? That, that's what often kind of help, triggers that unbelief, I think, in, in God's love. When life piles upon us, that's when it gets harder to believe that God really does love us, that he has our best interests at heart. And yet what we see here in Zephaniah is that the storms of life are actually what provide us with the, can provide us with the greatest experience of God's love, that we can experience this peace, this quiet in the midst of the storm because of his love. It's those difficulties that provide us with the best opportunities to experience the effects of his love, to be quieted, to be calmed while he rejoices and sings over us. And so as we wrap up this morning, I want to address just one more thing. There's one verse, there's one phrase that I sort of skipped over earlier, and I want to come back to that, and that's in verse 15. The very beginning of verse 15, we read this. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. And that is, I think, a very key part of this, uh, of this uh, passage, uh, that these judgments that have come before, the Lord is promising that, look, there's going to be a day when you're restored. There's going to be a day when I'm in your midst again. There's going to be a day where I remove these judgments from you. And so how does God do that? How does he remove those judgments? Does, does he just snap his fingers and, and, make, the, and make the judgments vanish? Uh, does he just sort of ignore all the sin that the people had committed? No, of course not. Uh, because that would be an unjust act, right? If there was a judge who let a criminal, a criminal go for free, with no, paying no penalty, we would say that's a crooked judge. That's an unjust judge. So God does not do that. A holy God could not turn a blind eye to our sin, to the judgment that we deserve. So someone had to t- pay that penalty. Someone had to take the penalty that we owed. Someone had to receive that punishment. So when God removes the judgment from us, from his people, he had to put it somewhere, and he did. He put it on his son. He put it on Jesus. And so do you see what has happened here? Do you see where this, what this passage is sort of directing us towards, what it's pointing us towards? That Jesus is the one who deserves to be rejoiced over. Jesus is the good son who, re- who deserves to have his father singing over him and rejoicing over him. That's what Jesus deserves. We deserve the judgment. But because Jesus loves us, because he came for us, he endured the judgment that was ours so that God could rejoice over us. When we are trusting in Christ, when we're resting in him, when we, become, when we are adopted and, and justified uh, by God's grace, and we become his sons and daughters, now that Jesus has taken the judgment that we deserved, we can experience the rejoicing from God. We can be the ones who he's singing over loudly. Not because we're so great, not because we've earned that honor, but because Jesus earned it and he's sharing it with us. So Jesus is the one who deserves the tender song to be sung over him from his Father. But he chose the wrath instead for you and for me so that sinners like us could be declared clean and that God could rejoice over us with loud singing. Jesus endured the storm of God's complete and perfect wrath so that we could be quieted by God's complete and perfect love. 
Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you have loved us with such a great love. We thank you that because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of what he has done on our behalf, that we can be the ones that you rejoice over. We can be the ones that you are singing over as a loving father sings over his sons and daughters. Lord, help us to be uh, thankful for that. Help us, to, uh, be, help us to rejoice in that good news. Help us in moments of despair, in moments of difficulty, of, of stress and sorrow, when we feel as though the storms of life will overtake us. Help us to uh, be quieted and be soothed and be calmed by uh, your love, O oh Lord. Help us to be calmed by these promises we find here of your love. Help us to believe them when it is difficult to believe. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.